time. Our scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you will see on the front of your worship program, we have been in this season of Advent, and we've been going through this series of recapturing the wonders of Christmas. What does it mean to recapture the wonders of Christmas? Well, it's getting at basically this idea of how can we break through the busyness that this season brings, the materialism this season brings, the stress that this season brings, and how can we actually capture the sense of wonder that it's supposed to inspire in us, that we're supposed to be able to experience? How can we have that? Well... I will submit to you this morning that to truly understand and experience the wonder of Christmas, you kind of have to find Christmas a little weird. Here's what I mean by that. If you are going to fully wrap your mind around and experience the wonder that comes from Christmas, you have to fully wrap your mind around exactly this thing that we're celebrating And when you do that, quite frankly, it is a bit weird. We go through hundreds of examples, but I'll just start with one. How many of you have a nativity set at home? It's okay. You can raise your hand. I have one. We have the Fisher-Price set, right? Then you have like the old-time toy wood set that you're like, where did this even come from set? And then you've got like the nice do not touch it, don't let mom sing you touch it nativity set, right? Everyone has that. That's great. How many of you, looks like a lot of you have had kids in this room, how many of you have a model kit of the day on which you gave birth that you then set up on your child's birthday and put out the little pieces and there's the OBGYN or there was the midwife and this was the rush to the hospital, like in the car that drive down the road. Like, how many of you have that? Hopefully none of you, right? Yeah, it's, it's a little weird. I mean, even when you kind of show pictures from the hospital, right? Moms are always like, crop out as much of me as possible and only have the baby, right? Because that's, that's just a bit weird. We go through hundreds of examples of how this is weird, but here's one that we're going to drill in on this morning. When you saw the wonders of Christmas, recapturing the wonders of Christmas. Maybe what popped in your head is what popped into my head, and that is the famous song that we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World, right? Because it has that chorus that repeats, and wonders of his love, right? And wonders of his love. And so you would think this morning we would be covering, finally, the wonders of his love. If we're going to recapture the wonders of Christmas, we've been looking at each kind of thing that we could stand in awe and wonder of. And while we would normally be doing that, Pastor Jeff got sick this week. So what happened is I got a call 
mid-morning Thursday. I want to exaggerate, you know, although, like, I'm, I'm prone to tell the story of, like, ah, late Thursday night, you know. Um, no, I got the call Thursday that he probably wasn't going to make it today and, unfortunately, would be covering the wonders of his love. And then next week, we would be covering that little phrase that comes before the chorus, the wonders of his love, which is, the glories of his righteousness. Actually, the, the verse goes, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Now again, this is Christmas. Righteousness, that's a little weird. No one bats an eye if you drive around Christmas, you know, looking at Christmas lights tonight and you see the Marian bride and most wonderful time of the year. But if you drove by a house that just had hanging from the window, righteousness, that would be a little weird. You'd wonder what's going on with that house, right? And so how do we wrap our minds around the fact that we would sing about the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. How does righteousness fit in to that Christmas song, to this Christmas season? What's so great about it? How can we really wrap our minds around what is admittedly a weird concept at first? The glories of his righteousness. How is it that if we were to recapture the meaning of that, that we'd be able to experience the wonder of Christmas? Hence the Scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So what's being revealed to us? So we're going to cover just three things here. The first is, well, what is the glory of his righteousness? What is this righteousness of God that's revealed? That's number one. And then we'll look at, well, why, why is that so special? Why do we need it? And then three, how do we, as the song would say, how do we prove it? How do we actually experience what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that is the power of God? How do we have that in our lives? So those will be our, our three questions that we'll tackle this morning. What is the righteousness of God? Why do we even need the righteousness of God revealed to us? And then how do we experience the power of that? How do we get it? So let's turn to that first question then. What is his righteousness? The glories of his righteousness. As I've already pointed out, this kind of typically has negative connotations in our context, right? If we were to talk about righteousness, you know, maybe you can understand that at some point they would have used phrases like, oh, he's a righteous man or she's a righteous woman, you know, in old times. But like, Anyone who talks about that now, like usually when the word righteousness gets thrown around, it's thrown around almost as a way to mock someone, you know, like the righteous gemstones, if you're aware of that TV show, or how righteousness, you know, they think they're more righteous than others. So I understand that while it may have negative connotations, if we were to actually look at the real concept, we use it in our everyday lives. It really is something that we cannot escape and that is always around us. Because ultimately, what righteousness is, it is, is a record that justifies your existence. It's a record that justifies your very existence. It is a validating performance record. You could even say it gives you access to things in the world. 
that not only are you validated by it, but then opens up opportunities for you. So we could easily say that any of you students, right, high schoolers who are applying to college right now or have already put in applications, right, all of that was put all your righteousness down in a piece of paper, then give us $200, and we'll see if we'll take a look at it, right? We want to see if your righteousness opens you the opportunity to be accepted into our school. Or if you're job hunting, right, you gather a resume, and ultimately, we wouldn't say it, but ultimately, it's assemble all of your righteousness onto this piece of paper or up into LinkedIn and send that around, and then maybe that'll get you access in these opportunities. But honestly, it goes deeper than just resumes and college applications. I think if you looked at all of the great films, kind of at the heart of them are people's search for righteousness. That is the plot of what drives them. This individual character is the thing that they're saying is going to justify their very existence. For example, Don Corleone, I spent my whole life trying not to be careless. I work my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. Everything he does is justified by his mission to take care of his family. You know, it's hard to miss the most famous one because it uses the word. Chariots of fire, Harold Abrams says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Rocky Balboa, if I can go the distance with Creed, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Severus Snape looking at Dumbledore and saying, always. James Bond saying, I'll do whatever it takes to get the job done. I could go on and on and on, but one that came up most recently, and I was like, that it? That's it? That captures it, is from the newest release of Percy Jackson. So if you're following this along on Disney+, Plus, um, it's basically this idea, I promise, no spoilers, right? Hence why if you didn't get the Snape one, I'm not going to ruin it for you, all right? So, but... Percy Jackson is, is essentially, it imagines what if the gods of Olympus were among us today? You know, not in a like metaphysical, you know, God kind of way, um, but in a like, they're like Avengers kind of way. You know, they're around us and they're heroes and that kind of thing, but you know, kept hidden. And if they have children like they did back in, you know, Tales of the Odyssey, right, or the Tales of Jason, right? What if, what if you just set all of those stories in modern times, essentially? and how it plays out. And so it follows Percy Jackson, who doesn't know who his, quote, parent from Olympus is, doesn't know who his father is. He just knows that he's basically been raised by a single mom with a terrible stepdad at one point who enters the picture. And so he finds his way to this camp called Camp Half-Blood. And at the camp, they talk about this sense of glory, that if you can stop focusing on you know, why the, the immortals of Olympus do what they do. But instead, if you could just focus on what this camp really has to offer, Percy's mentor begins to tell him, you can experience everything this camp has, and that is glory. And so just in this latest episode, he goes on to say, demigods have always fought for glory. They used to call it kleos. It's like this stuff that attaches itself to your name, makes it bigger 
scarier, more important. People listen closer when you talk. They work harder to be your friend, and they think twice about messing with you. And Percy, the gears in his head begin to turn, and he realizes, I won't be picked on if I can get this glory, right? Have these accomplishments. And then he goes to say, and my dad won't be able to ignore me anymore. I'll be able to have his attention. You see, this idea of glory in Percy Jackson is exactly the idea of righteousness in the Bible. It's this record that you amass that God will not be able to ignore you. Others will not be able to ignore you. Nowhere does this come up more for us, I think, than during the holidays, right? It's that thing that you reach for psychologically when you're driving up to that family dinner and you're thinking, okay, what, what am I going to actually know that I'm okay because I'm coming? You know, I'm coming and even though maybe at this point my marriage is falling apart, it's okay because I'm doing really well at work. And so as long as we can keep the conversation about how work's going or that kind of thing, I, I can have my right to sit at this table and feel okay about myself. Or, you know, my brother may make a lot more money than me, but he never sees his kids. You know, so at least, at least I get time with my family. Right? Or, yeah, I mean, she might be the, the, the smarter sister who's always had it together, but I at least get to be the pretty one. Right? It's that thing that that inside you reach for that makes you know, like, if we can, if I can, long as I can have this, I can sit at this family table and feel okay about myself. So here's the question. When we look at the righteousness of God, is that the record that gives us access to now sit at God's table? And therefore, ultimately, it's the thing that validates us, that justifies our ability to sit before God. You know, and I don't know what exactly maybe you believe in, but that there's some sort of discipline, that if you do the right things, you know, if you meditate or, I don't know, take ice baths and sauna, like whatever it is, like if you do the right things, if you do it well enough, you can have a right to access the divine or the spiritual. You see, this is how Martin Luther, who kind of kicked off this whole Protestant revolution thing. This is how he understood Romans chapter 1 and what God's righteousness was exactly to be. But this is what he said about it. He said there was a single word in chapter 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that it stood in my way. For I had hated the word, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. There's a message for Christmas. Martin Luther reads Romans chapter 1. I mean, he's this great lecturer, right, in, in, at the time. And expounding it, he can't wrap his mind around it. And even though he's explaining it to others, that this is this moral record that you have to have in order to sit at God's table, you know, in order to be accepted by God. And yet Luther's honest enough to say, I hated God for this. He actually goes on. He goes, even though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before an extremely 
or it's before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. No, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And he goes on to say, it's not enough that we get to be born in original sin. And then we have these Ten Commandments and all the laws in the Old Testament. Then now we have this New Testament, which brings this gospel, which just shows us even more of a righteousness that we have to try and attain in order to sit at God's table. Is that what it is? But then the reason we have this is because Luther had an entirely, he calls it a, a breakthrough where he understood the context where it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, and then it's a quote from the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. You see, the idea here is you do not amass a righteousness that then grants you access to be able to sit at God's table and feel good about yourself but it's the exact opposite. It is a righteousness that is given as a gift. The very word gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, as it says in verse 16. The very word comes from euangelion, right? Which is where we would get the idea of evangelical, right? Evangel that has the word angel in it because the people who would announce a gospel, I know that sounds like a very religious word, but it's actually not. In its first century context, there was a Roman gospel. There was the gospel of Caesar because all it was is it was an announcement. And more often than not, it was announcements of victories that had been won. So the army, the Roman military goes out, they win a victory, and thus the gospel of Caesar is proclaimed, that peace has come. And it's that very word that then gets attributed to Jesus, that Jesus has come and he has won a victory that he has amassed a righteousness that then is given to us as a gift. So the gospel is not, as we say very often around here, it's not good advice that this is what you need to do in order to feel good at God's table. But instead, the gospel is the very welcome of God being announced that your seat has been prepared because of what Jesus has done for you. The great battle has been won. Just to compare words here, Paul would write also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which I'll have on the screen for you, where it reads, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That doesn't change who we are on the inside, just like that. It changes our relationship to God, our access to sit at that family table with him. And to know that we're okay. Now, maybe you're sitting there after this first point. What is the righteousness of God? Well, it's not our own record that we bring to God, but it's instead the record that God has brought to us, that he has announced to us as the angels announced it to the shepherds, right? And so all there, we get to have it announced for us. But you may think, okay, where is the wonder? Can we bring the kids back on stage? That was cute. You know, is the rest of the sermon going to be like this? Here's the point. Here's the point that I'm getting at. Is your version of spirituality, is your relationship with God primarily about you? Or is it primarily about 
God? Is it entirely focused on you and what you have to do and what you have to achieve and how well it's going, and that's how you're okay to be with God? Or is it all about the things that you're going to do? And the reason I ask that, because it sets up the second question, is why is this righteousness so glorious, as the song would say? Why is this righteousness something that we actually need? And so that brings us into our second question. Why do we need this? Maybe people like Luther need it. I mean, after all, he seems pretty neurotic, right? He's always kind of had a, a heavy conscience. One of those types who are just, you know, kind of sensitive, plagued by guilt, always worried if God's going to forgive them. He just kind of needs to relax, you know? Maybe he needs a counselor, not just a sense of righteousness and stop doing so much theology. But here's the thing. I would say that we're all actually after a sense of righteousness. As I said before, there are going to be things that instinctively each one of us in our heart of hearts will reach for that will say, okay, this is why I'm okay to be at this table right now during this holiday season. You know, or just to drive it home, you're getting all these Christmas cards. You see all these wonderful pictures, right? And even though you swore off Instagram, it's like Instagram has attacked your mailbox and all these happy, perfect things, and they come at you, and the worst ones, you know who you are, the worst ones are all the people on the back who have written up all the amazing things their kids are great at, right? And you just sit there, and you just kind of sink, and you're like, ugh. I didn't even get my Christmas cards out on time this year. And these people have a five-paragraph essay about their, well, about their righteousness in many ways. Well, this is not bad. Those are great cards to get, actually. Right? But it, what does it do inside your heart? Why is there like a little bit of resistance to that sometimes? Because you're immediately kind of pressed to have to reach for, well, what's my righteousness? Is it because, you know, like, wow, she got old, right? Or, or is it like, oh, man, they don't seem to be doing so well. Moved for, moved the fifth time, huh? Right? That's, all of that is righteousness, right? We're all after it. There is something instinctively that we reach for, but there's two problems with all of those ways in which we try to justify ourselves, to get our own sense of righteousness. The first problem, Paul actually kind of unpacks for us in Romans chapter 2. He says in Romans chapter 2 this, every one of you who judges is without excuse. So what he's saying there is you saw that Christmas card and you, you had that thought of like, oh man, they got old, right? Or you had that thought of like, oh, are we doing okay? Right? There's a judgment. He says, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? Well, here's why. Since you, the judge, do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you think any one of you who judges will do such things and yet do the same that you'll escape God's judgment? Let me simplify this for you. John Stott has this great illustration. He's an old Anglican theologian where he talks about, you've probably heard it before. He talks about, imagine you went around your whole life with a tape recorder around your neck. I don't have time to explain what a tape recorder is. So imagine you go your whole life with voice notes on in your back pocket, right? Because your phone's always on you, right? Everything you've ever said or done is recorded. And at the end of history, this is how God judges you. He doesn't break out the Ten Commandments. He reaches into your back pocket and he plays the voice memos. And in those voice memos, he just makes a note of every time you passed a judgment. Every time you said they shouldn't do that, or that shouldn't be like that, or this should be different. And then he pulls up 
you know, the, I guess God has the 3D version so far, right? Of all the times in which you did the very same thing that you passed judgment on for others, okay? He says, that's what judgment's going to be like. This is Paul in Romans chapter 2. It's like, just on that standard alone, we're all toast. Our judgments are going to double back on us. My kids are like dogs at the back of a restaurant trying to get at the presents under the Christmas tree right now, okay? So, (laughs) every day, they're just at me. Like, it won't surprise me if we move the presents and we find that they have tunneled underneath of them, unwrapped them, wrapped them back up. It is, like, we got laser beams in the living room, you know, that they have to gymnastics their way to get to these presents. Okay, we get a present from a friend yesterday. My wife comes upstairs, sits down, and is like, want to open it? I'm like, yeah, I want to open it. Let's open it. And immediately, with these notes in front of me, I'm like, oh, no. We can't open presents until Christmas, is what we told the kids. And here I am, so willing to break my own rule for me, yet imposing this rule upon these poor children who have to have me as their father, right? So that's that's one problem with our selfishness. The other problem, excuse me, is, is our righteousness. The other problem is the selfishness problem. And the selfishness problem goes like this, is that in all of us trying to get our own justification or our own sense of righteousness, well, first off, anyone who says, well, you, you should just not care what other people think. You know, even though the, you, know, you pass judgments on others, therefore, you need to not judge others, and then therefore, you should not care about what other people think of you. The problem with that is that if you're, if you're actually really able to do that, you're just a narcissist and a sociopath, right? If you really do not care what other people think. So how do we get our own sense of righteousness, our own validation? Well, we ultimately think, well, how do we do that but avoid the selfishness trap? And here's what I mean. Elizabeth Elliot, who is this famous Christian from recent times, um, missionary, you know, has been widowed and husbands were martyred on the mission field. And in her radio program, The Gateway to Joy, she tells this little story. And it's this story that encapsulates this problem where in trying to amass our own record of righteousness, it actually is just self-centered and folds in on itself. And we've been talking about this in our middle school class a lot, but I'll use a different illustration than I've used for them. And so she tells the story. Imagine Jesus is there with his 12 disciples, right? And he's like, guys, will you carry a rock for me today? And so the disciples kind of look around and they're like, uh, okay. And so I guess they put rocks in their togas and robes. And, you know, one of the disciples, we won't say who, right? He looks around and he's like, I mean, this is technically a rock. And it's the smallest rock you could imagine, right? Slips it and carries it around all day for Jesus, right? Really heavy burden. To the point where at the end of the day, they come back to the side of the lake, and Jesus says, oh boy, what a day. Guys, you remember that rock I asked you to carry for me? Could you pull that rock out, please? Now, of course, this disciple doesn't even remember where he put it. You know, boom, there it is in the sandal, thankfully, or maybe I'll just use this rock right here. Whatever it may be, pull that rock. He's like, great. 
boom, instantly Jesus turns the rocks to bread. He's like, let's eat. You can imagine this disciple's disappointment. This is all he has to eat now. This little rock that he carried, you know, this heavy burden for Jesus. So the next morning they wake up. This disciple wakes up hungry. And Jesus says, hey guys, again, will you carry a rock for me today? So you can imagine in this disciple's mind, he is searching for the biggest boulder he can find. At this point, he is rolling this thing through the towns as they're preaching the gospel, right? He's like, God, Jesus got this rock, right? Rolling it around. Any chance he gets to remind Jesus, remember those rocks? I still got mine, right? Rolling around. They get to the end of the day. They go by the lake. Sun is setting. He's super hungry. He cannot wait. And Jesus is like, all right, remember those rocks? Why don't you just throw those into the lake? Let's go get some fish. You can imagine this disciple's disappointment as he slowly kind of kicks his boulder into the water and is like, all of that for nothing, only to turn around and be confronted by Jesus. And Jesus says, you know how I asked you to carry the rock for me? This whole day, you've only been carrying that rock for yourself. You see, the reason I tell this story is because so many of our record of righteousness, whether it's trying to be a good righteous for God, or whether it's just a sort of righteousness that gets a claim and a praise from those around you and in your family, all of that righteousness is ultimately carried for you. And therefore, no good that you ever do is untainted by the selfishness of ultimately this is for you. And the problem with all of this is, is that all forms of righteousness, whether Christian or godly or otherwise, none of them can actually hold you up. And you can't actually hold on to them. Because the gospel is the only righteousness that's going to declare victory. You have a place at this table. Where all other righteousnesses are going to be accomplished only to the degree that you are willing to be selfish enough to go after them harder and harder and harder, and that they're always going to come back to you, and they're not going to cry victory. They're going to cry, what have you done for me lately? They cannot hold you, and you cannot hold them. Because then, eventually, let's say your righteousness is found in your relationships. Maybe work's not great or you don't make as much money as them, but you know what? You get to spend a lot of time with your family, but then something goes wrong in your marriage or with your kids, and it will. Then all of a sudden, that very thing that made you feel okay to go home on the holidays with is now no longer there. And you can't actually now be the kind of spouse that you wanted to be because ultimately your spouse is letting you down and you can't handle that because that's where you were finding your righteousness or your children are letting you down and you can't handle that because being a good parent was where you found your righteousness. It will always be crying, what have you done for me lately? It will never be a cry of victory like the gospel is. Well, then how do we prove the glories of his righteousness? We'll end on this. How do we come to God and actually experience and recapture the wonder well, the first thing we have to understand is that this is not this righteousness. It's not some abstract record, even, even though I've kind of been talking about it in this way. The righteousness that I'm talking about here is the actual flesh and blood record of Jesus 
who got into the cramped quarters of a womb, took on all of human nature, lived a perfect life, and instead of being heralded with the cry of victory, he was pronounced the sentence of death so that we can hear the cry of victory. As I read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I'd like to ask you, when you look at that righteousness of God, this gospel, is it a cry of victory for you? Or is it just a cry of forgiveness? Hear me out. There is a difference. Is it a cry of victory? Is it a cry of forgiveness? Because again, note what it said here in verse 16. It is the power of God. I think in order to really access that power too, as it says, prove the glories of his righteousness. That's just comes from this idea of the proving ground where you test it out, you experience it, you see it's real. How do you get the reality of that in your life? Well, you understand that it's not just forgiveness. John Stott, who I mentioned earlier, he quotes Sir Marcus Lone, talking about how this righteousness is not less than forgiveness, but it is more. He goes to say, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You've been let off the penalty, let off the hook, which your sins deserve. But the voice which renders the verdict, you've been accepted, you've been deemed righteous, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. So when you look at the righteousness of God, is it merely just, okay, God has forgiven you. You may go. Go and sin no more. So we could often quote Jesus. Or is it, yes, you are off the hook, but now you may come. You can sit at the table of God. You can come to the family gathering and you do not need to reach in your heart of hearts for a sense of righteousness. That righteousness has been provided for you. Now, I think there's two ways in which we can fail to work this out and I'll try and cover them quickly. The first one is, as it says in verse 16, the very first words is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's a weird way to say it. Why would Paul be ashamed? I can think of at least two reasons that we would have before us now as we talk through this. The first one is, do we really want the kids to hear this? Like, do we really want to tell our kids, let's make it more poignant, do we really want to tell the 16-year-old boys in the room that it doesn't matter what you do, God will forgive you? Really? Like, that there's nothing you have to do? Well, I think Tim Keller answers this really well in his little book on Romans for You, where he walks through as a commentary in many ways. And he points out that if the only reason you were obeying God is because you were worried about what might go wrong. Well, if I don't do this, it won't bless me in this way, or I'll lose this, or this bad thing might happen. If the only motivation was a motivation of fear, you really never had a motivation to begin with, because again, fear goes back to that, who were you carrying the rock for? Yourself. I better do this or God will bless me. Where instead, this righteousness we can be unashamed of it because it sets us free to obey him out of love and honor because he is worthy. 
Again, to quote Elizabeth Elliot, as she would say, if God is my accomplice, he betrayed me. When she looks back on all the things that have happened in her life and the husbands that she's lost. She said, but if he is a king, he freed me. The second objection or the second way that I think we can be ashamed of the gospel goes like this. I don't want someone to take responsibility for me. I want to stand on my own record. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want to be held accountable, but I also want to achieve and receive all the glory and honor that's due for me trying hard. That I do want to stand on my own sense of righteousness. Now, we could go back to the John Stott point and say, well, let's break out the voice memos. Would you even hold up to your own record? But I think we could come at it another way as well. And that's like this. Imagine your child comes to you, you know, and they say, Mom, Dad, I don't want you to love me just because I'm your child anymore. I want you to love me based on my own record, based on what I do for this family, based on what I bring to the table here. That's why I want you to love me, and I want to stand on that. Now, in one sense, that may sound admirable, right? But little guy's got spunk. But on the other hand, it's absurd because, one, I mean, they bring nothing to the table except expenses, right? And two, right, it's like, let's say, let's say you actually could live a perfect life and you could have a righteousness to stand on. Let's say. Even if you had an absolutely perfect, spotless record, it still doesn't get you the kind of access that God is willing to give you through this gift of his son, Jesus. Because there's no sense of anyone being able to ever earn the position of son or daughter in a family. It's not a position you could ever earn. There's nothing you could ever do, no matter how great you are, to actually earn that. Thus, there's nothing you could ever do to experience the joy of being called the child of God. And so what's offered to you is far more than something that will feed your pride and your ego. What's offered to you is the position of Jesus himself, the one who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And thus we get to receive it as a gift. And it's why only tomorrow will we open gifts in my house. No. It's why we open gifts it's why we give these gifts to remind us ultimately of the gift that we've been given and the righteousness of God. So let's pray. Father, we come before you asking you to help us recapture the wonders of your righteousness, to experience the awe, the majesty, the glory that you've bestowed upon us. We ask that you would help us to lay aside those, those false forms of righteousness, the things that we would instinctively reach to in our own hearts and help grant us new instincts to reach for the record of Jesus, the love of God that has been manifest for us and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be sealed in it to know the glory of his righteousness, which has been revealed for us in the gospel. Amen.